All right, sorry, uh, we're on lesson number 78 tonight, number 78, so I was jumping ahead of one, uh, but we are going to be looking uh, in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10, if you just want to follow along in the Bible. Again, that's Luke chapter 17, uh, verses 1 through 10. Uh, of course, if you were with us on Sunday morning, we finished Luke chapter 16, uh, where Jesus uh, talks about the rich man and Lazarus, and you know, we kind of, you know, we got to keep our mindset of the context of where we are in the study. If you remember all the way back in Luke chapter 15, you know, Jesus has a uh, determination to get those uh, who are listening to him to change their mind about people. Remember, uh, he gives those three parables there in Luke chapter 15 about the lost. And so he wants them to get their mindset on how they should be responding to those uh, again, who they deem to be sinners, uh, tax collectors and sinners. And so he wants them to change their mind about them. And then when we looked at Luke chapter 16, that first parable that we looked at there, uh, he had wealth in mind. Remember, he gives the, the parable of the unrighteous, unrighteous steward. And so, uh, again, um, getting people to change their mind about people, getting their minds changed about wealth. And then uh, last Sunday or excuse me, on Sunday morning, we sort of combined those two thoughts as we finished out Luke chapter 16, where he gives this parable about the rich man and Lazarus. And that kind of, again, that combines those two ideas, those two thoughts. Uh, We talked about kind of at length, you know, was this a parable or was this an actual event that happened that Jesus was referencing? And we, you know, kind of talked about the pros and cons to both of those uh, arguments on both sides. But uh, at least for me, um, that this was a real actual account, you know, because again, Lazarus, uh, this man named Lazarus, uh, no person in any parable is ever given a name. And so it's just kind of odd that if this was a parable and Jesus does not tell us it's a parable, Luke does not tell us it's a parable. And so uh, I'm concluding that we have a real actual account here that Jesus is giving uh, about uh, who, uh, about this uh, man, the rich man and Lazarus. And again, we can learn a lot about, uh, especially, you know, we took a lot of time talking about sort of, you know, life after death and uh, what the the rich man and Lazarus uh, all entailed. And again, we're not going to have time to go back into that in detail, but uh, they're contrasted, right? They're contrasted in their earthly life. You got the poor versus the rich. They're contrasted in their death, whereas um, the rich man, we're just told he basically uh, woke up in Hades while uh, Lazarus had the angels, right? The angels who carried him off to Abraham's bosom. And then we also see that they're contrasted uh, after death, life after death, right? Again, uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the, the rich man is in torment. And we also talked, you know, quite a bit about this idea of Hades, right? The Hadean realm, uh, which, you know, he explains there's that great gulf fix, this great chasm in between uh, where one side cannot go to the other side. And, you know, the, again, this is according to Acts chapter 2, verse 31, this is where Jesus went uh, after his death on the cross for those three days. He was in Hades. Uh, and again, uh, that would have been the side that the, Lazarus was on, right? Uh, Abraham's bosom or in other places in Scripture, it's referred to as paradise. And so that was the lesson that we looked at Sunday morning. We're continuing on in the book of Luke. Again, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And we're noticing our time 
in Perea is coming close to an end. Again, this is the land that's east of the Jordan River. Uh, This is the land where uh, those uh, two and a half tribes back in the Old Testament decided to settle instead of going into the land of Canaan. And so there's a lot of, uh, again, a lot of uh, Jewish descent out here in this land. And Jesus is, and Luke's really the only gospel writer that gives us uh, any information about what's, about his teachings in Perea. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we've been in Luke for quite a while these past couple of weeks. And we're going to be making our way out of Perea here pretty soon. Um, I think uh, our Sunday morning lesson is going to be on uh, the other Lazarus in Scripture. Uh, but this time, the, the brother of Mary and Martha. And that's going to take place in Bethany. And so we're going to see Jesus uh, move uh, outside of Perea for a time. But before we get there, we need to uh, pay attention to these verses here. Again, in Luke chapter 17. Uh, if you notice in the curriculum, I think it's just basically referenced as general teachings and warnings or uh, miscellaneous teachings. So uh, a lot of what we're going to read here, at least the first five verses, are going to be things that we've already heard Jesus say to other um, audiences uh, during his ministry. Uh, the, the last five verses is actually something new that we have not heard before. And so we'll, we'll spend some time in there as well. But let's go ahead and uh, read all 10 verses, and then we'll sort of jump through uh, verse by verse and and notice some things. So again, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 1, Luke records, He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say... We are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Okay, so hopefully some of those verses that we heard, especially in the first four verses, are something we've already heard Jesus teach, again, throughout his ministry. But let's notice verses 1 and 2 again. So he says to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks... Or if you have a footnote there, uh, temptations to sin, stumbling blocks come, uh, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than uh, that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. So uh, first off, let's talk about this, uh, this uh, description, little ones. You know, who do you think uh, Jesus is referencing there?
In this? Yeah, so uh, in this specific context, uh, you know, we'll see in Matthew chapter 18 a little bit later in a d- different study that uh, he's going to talk similar language, but it's going to be when he's got little, actual little ones, uh, children around him. But right now, he only has disciples around him, right? And so Jesus says, again here, woe to them, uh, uh, it is inevitable that stomach blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come, right? So uh, Jesus here is referencing uh, his disciples. In particular, he's referencing uh, new converts, you know, those who are uh, new to the faith, you know, new believers. Uh, Paul, in Romans chapter 14 and 15, he refers to uh, sort of uh, newer converts or those newer to the faith as um, weak, the, the weaker brother. Now, uh, is that meant to be an insult to someone? No, we see some heads shaking. No, no. Uh, Paul's not referencing, you know, weak as in, you know, uh, physical stamina or anything like that. But it just to simply means someone who is uh, not as mature in the faith as uh, maybe another. And uh, <clears throat> he talks about this quite a bit, actually, uh, in Scripture. Romans chapter 14 and 15. Uh, but, but the curriculum that we are looking at is uh, pointing us to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So uh, before we move forward, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. It's only uh, 13 verses here, but uh, they want us to compare what Jesus said here in Luke 17 to what Paul had to say uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 8. And so uh, let's go ahead and read uh, what Paul has to say here. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, he, he writes, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some being accustomed to the idol until now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food will not uh, commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge, uh, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. You know, that verse 13 really stands out to me. Uh, who, who's willing to say that they would never eat meat again? Right? Uh, now, obviously, we're, we're kind of saying that in jest. But, uh, you know, so what's Paul saying here? Um, or what's the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8? So 
you know, obviously we're living in a, or we're, we're speaking of a time where there was idol worship, right? And so uh, a lot of times what would happen was you, you would sacrifice, you know, your, your ox, your, 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 your sheep, whatever, to your false god. And uh, then you'd take that meat to the market and sell it, right? And so uh, people knew that when, when you went to the market, it's likely that you were buying meat that had been sacrificed to you know, a false god. So if you're, if you're a new Christian, if you've just come, came out of that world of uh, pagan worship, of idol worship, and you're a new Christian, and you see uh, you know, maybe uh, this much more mature brother going to the market and purchasing meat and taking home and eat it, you know, it's going to be... It's going to be a little tough for you to see that, right? Because uh, in your previous life, uh, you know, that meat was sacrificed to an idol. Uh, but now as a Christian, you understand that uh, there's only but one God. To the, to the mature Christian, uh, they understand there's one God, right? There, there's only one God. It, if that meat's sacrificed to an idol, uh, it, it means nothing to them uh, because there is no other God, right? But to the weaker brother... You know, Paul says that uh, that could be a stumbling block to him to see uh, someone, you know, eating that meat. And so, again, you know, Paul emphasizes there at the very end, uh, you know, if, if, it, if that's going to cause my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. What are some ways people uh, stumble today? Let me throw that out here to you. What, or what are some things that we as Christians need to be aware of? Uh, about the Christ, about you know our brothers and sisters around us that we might not um, you know cause them to stumble. Think of anything? All my talkers are out of class today. <laughs> Well, let's throw some things out there. Uh, you know, what about uh, the, the, the things that we say? Or, you know, the things that we do. I know that's very broad, but, uh, you know, if we're, uh, you know, outside the church building, we're hanging out with our, our friends, and uh, maybe we use a little bit of colorful <coughs> language, right? We use a little bit of colorful language around somebody who may be a new convert, a new Christian, and they hear that. Could that be a stumbling block to them? It could, couldn't it? The places you go, too. The places you go, right. Right, places you go, the things that you say. Uh, again, those, uh, those are very broad. You know, uh, think about, um, you know, think about church attendance, right? Um, sometimes we might uh, notice somebody gone uh, and that might cause us to reflect upon that, right? Uh, that, you know, where, where are they? Oh, why aren't they here at worship today? Now, you know, obviously we understand that, uh, you know, some, some people are, um, you know, homebound or unable to come uh, to worship. But for others, you know, we might ask, well, where are they? You know, wh- why aren't they here on a Wednesday night? Why aren't they here on a Sunday uh, evening at worship services? And, and that could be a stumbling block to others. You know, because they look at, they look up at them at maybe a, a more mature Christian, and they wonder, well, if they're not there, then you know, why, why do I need to be there? 
right? And so that, that as well could be a stumbling block. So again, a lot of different things, uh, but notice that uh, Jesus gives a pretty uh, tough uh, response in verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown in the sea than he caused one of these little ones, again, one of these less mature Christians, to stumble. Let's think about that millstone. What's the size of a millstone? I mean, is this something that we could easily wear around our neck? It'll sink, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, quite heavy, right? Quite large. Uh, you know, you're usually going to have an animal that's going to uh, turn that. And so Jesus is using some pretty uh, vivid language for us. It would be better for him to have something hung around his neck that there's no way he's going to be able to lift and be thrown in the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And again, that might sound harsh to us, but a soul is valuable, Right? Souls are valuable, and especially uh, those who are beginning their walk with Christ. Uh, that's a delicate time, isn't it? When, when their faith is not quite built up where it should be, or where it, it will be, where it could be. And it's a very delicate time. And so, um, again, so th- those are some um, uh, good thoughts here by our Lord. And then he goes on in verse 3, but says, Be on your guard. So, um, he's referencing back to this idea of uh, causing someone to stumble. So he says, be on your guard, right? Watch out, pay attention uh, that you don't cause a little one to stumble. And then he goes on to say, but if your brother sins, rebuke him. What does it mean to rebuke someone? Is that a... Is that a is it a bad thing to rebuke someone? Depends on how you do it. Okay, yeah, good answer. Depends on how we do it. Uh, how would Jesus have us do it? Rebuke them with love. Okay, yeah, rebuke them with love. Right, so um, it takes courage to rebuke someone, right, to confront them and... Uh, you know, and again, there, there might be different avenues as to why we're going to uh, rebuke someone or reprove someone. Um, maybe it's making them aware of their sin. You know, some are not aware that, you know, they're uh, in sin. And so uh, it's going to take the, the courage of a brother or sister to go to them and to make them aware of their sin. There are also um, encouraging those to forsake the sin. Or even uh, further along, you know, maybe um, chastising someone who has been uh, in that sin for a while. You know, uh, um, but as Mike said, it, it's got to be done in the, in the proper spirit, right? Uh, you know, I'll just give an example of here just last night. Uh, I won't mention any names, but there was someone here last night I met for the first time. But uh, apparently he had been a member here for... Uh, quite a long time back in the day. Again, this is way before uh, I was here, but um, he had come to uh, the funeral, uh, to the visitation, and one of our members here had his arms wrapped around him, you know, telling him he missed him, telling him he loved him, and but was very frank with him. You know, you ought to be here. You know that uh, 
you're not here is, is wrong, right? And so I was in my, uh, you know, just last night I was uh, watching, you know, one of our brothers uh, rebuke a man uh, in, in an instance, right? But he was doing it in love. He was doing it because he was concerned for his soul uh, because he's now been outside of the church for, again, I don't know how long, but 20 some years. But he had the confidence and the, the love to go up to him and say, you know, where are you? Why aren't you here? And so uh, obviously there's a lot of scriptures we could look at. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 tells us that we need to do that in the spirit of gentleness. Again, not, um, not being brash about that or uh, being mean-spirited, but in a spirit of gentleness. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, of course, tells us if any among us strays from the truth, that we go to them and that we help uh, bring them back. Uh, there's an interesting verse in, in the book of Jude. Uh, you know, that's that one chapter book towards the end of the New Testament. But it talks about these different scenarios. Uh, there might be times where we need to snatch people out of the fire, he says. Or uh, other times there might be a different method. Uh, he talks about a couple of those in there. Uh, but again, um, Jesus says here, uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. But then he says, uh, but if he repents, forgive him. Right? We forgive him. How many times are we to forgive him, he says in verse 4. Yeah, so he, he's you know, giving us some figurative language here, but he says uh, seven times a day, and if he return, returns, or excuse me, if he sins against you seven times a day, and he returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Uh, you know, this is a lot, very similar, again, to his teaching back in uh, Matthew chapter 18, that we've already covered this, but remember, uh, you know, Peter asks, uh, Jesus, you know, how many times should we forgive a person? Up to seven times. Well, we also kind of broke that down because, you know, the rabbis of the day said, listen, you only have to forgive uh, three times. You know, you only need to forgive somebody three times. And after that third time, uh, you don't have to forgive a person, right? And so Peter is probably feeling pretty uh, good here, but because he says, well, listen, how about up to seven times, Jesus? You know, I'm going to double the rabbi's number and I'm going to add one more to it and uh, I'll forgive up to seven times. But I think somebody already said it, but Jesus said, no, but up to uh, 70 times seven, right? Uh, not, he's not saying up to 490 times, uh, if, if I did my math correctly, but he's, he's saying, uh, if your brother comes to you and repents, uh, you are to forgive him uh, limitlessly, right? Uh, up to seven times a day, you forgive him up to seven times a day. So, um, again, be on guard. Uh, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Um, verse 5. So, verse 5, it's interesting now. The, the, the apostles hear this and they say, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. You know, that... Maybe the, the teachings that they were just hearing were a little hard for them, right? And so they're saying, Jesus, increase our faith. Uh, help us to uh, believe in this e even more. Um, what does Jesus say in verse 6? He says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Uh, did he answer their request? 
No, he, he didn't answer their request here, uh, but he did, uh, in a way, sort of honor them uh, with their uh, response, right? Because uh, is it a good thing to maybe spot a, a weakness in our spiritual lives and to ask you know, God or ask, ask God to uh, you know, help us with that weakness? Yeah, that's exactly what's going on here, right? The, 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 the apostles, they, they spot a weakness in their lives, their faith, and they ask Jesus, increase our faith. And uh, Jesus gives them this, this statement here. Uh, what do we know about mulberry trees? Are, is anyone here familiar with a mulberry tree or why Jesus might have used a mulberry tree in this example? Okay, yeah, I had to do a little research on that as well, but uh, as the curriculum points out and other places I talk about, a mulberry tree has pretty deep roots, right? So it's pretty tough to, it's not one of those trees that you could just come along and just pluck it out of the ground, uh, but it, it's deep, it's tough to uproot, and so Jesus here is saying, you know, even the smallest amount of faith Again, like a mustard seed, we've used or we've seen that comparison before. That mustard seed, uh, you can do tremendous things, right? If you just have the faith of a mustard seed, and you know what what position is Jesus taking about faith? Is it quality or is it quantity that he's concerned with? It's the quality of our faith, isn't it? Uh, if you just had the faith of a mustard seed. Right? You could go and uproot this, this uh, mulberry tree that's you know, strengthened into the ground, and you could tell it to uproot and go and plant itself in, in the sea uh, with that uh, great faith. And so, um, you know, I was just kind of thinking about that today. You know, if, uh, if the Lord uh, asked us today, or if we asked the Lord today to increase our faith, uh, you know, how would he respond to that? What do you think he would tell us how you and I should increase? how we can increase our faith. What's Paul say in Romans 10, 17? Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by what? The word of Christ, right? Our faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I might think he might tell us, go read the scriptures. You want to increase your faith? Go read the scriptures. Uh, you remember John in his gospel, uh, sort of his mission statement, uh, he puts at the very end, John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, he says there, uh, but these things have been written, uh, the book of John has been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, All right? And so if you want to increase your faith, you know, read the scriptures, All right? Get into the word. Uh, we got about five minutes left, and so let's uh, read this final uh, this final warning, uh, this final statement that Jesus has, starting in verse 7. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him, when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down and eat? Uh, but he will not say to him, Prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which uh, were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Okay, so, um, you know, he, he just got done talking about increasing one's faith. And uh, 
What might happen to someone who uh, maybe increases their faith? We might get a little um, haughty, right? We, we might get a little proud. And so uh, here Jesus is reminding them that, you know, that's dangerous, right? So uh, even if we have the right attitude about sin and about sinners, uh, does that obligate us to God? Does God owe us something uh, because we agree with him in those aspects? Well, no. Um, I know my translation used uh, in this verse, uh, we are unworthy slaves, but uh, I, th- I like the other translations that say we are unprofitable servants. Right? We are unprofitable servants when it comes to, uh, when it comes to God. So again, he gives us this, this example. There's a servant who's attending to his duties. You know, he's out plowing. He's out take, tending to the sheep. And his day concludes. He returns to his master's house. Um, but does the master invite him to sit down and have dinner with him? No, he doesn't, does he? He says, uh, first, you, first take care of me, right? Serve me, uh, prepare my food. And then after that, you can seek your own needs. And actually, you know, the master is not even required to say thank you to his servant, right? Because he's just doing what he simply uh, is supposed to be doing anyways. Have any of us ever, uh, will, let me rephrase this, will any of us ever do exactly everything that we have been commanded to do? No, it's impossible, isn't it? And so... um, we are, as you know, Jesus puts it here, uh, unworthy slaves, right? Again, um, <clears throat> we ha- we're merely doing our own duty. And, and there are so many different um, lessons that we can learn from uh, that, those short verses right there. Of course, uh, God being our master, uh, we are the servants. Uh, he expects our devoted service to him, um, Humanity has a duty to God, of course. Uh, you remember what, it, what uh, Solomon wrote there in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13? <clears throat> Fear God and keep his commandments, right? Because this is the whole duty of man. Uh, we, we have a duty, an obligation to God, right? Uh, none of us... Uh, we'll do all that we are ever commanded. Uh, but again, stay humble, he says. Stay humble. Uh, you're just an unprofitable servant. Uh, you're, you're just doing what you're supposed to be doing uh, anyway. And so, um, again, a lot, of, a lot of meat packed into those uh, 10 verses uh, as Jesus is going to be transitioning from here to, um, or we'll, go, we'll move in to on Sunday morning into uh, John chapter 11, uh, really looking at that whole chapter of where uh, he's going to get that message that you know, one of his very good friends uh, is ill. Uh, but of course, do you remember, does Jesus end up going right away to him, to Lazarus? He doesn't, does he? He waits around uh, a, couple, a couple of days before he goes, and he's going to find out when he gets there that Lazarus has passed. And so... Um, you know, obviously, we'll leave you in suspense as to what happens a Sunday morning, but there's just so much uh, powerful uh, 
message in there. Um, I believe our time's up, even though I don't think that bell rang. But uh, go ahead. Oh, there we are. But appreciate uh, you guys tonight and all the good comments.